0: you do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm John Dickerson in Washington and this week on Face the Nation. Will that fragile ceasefire in the Middle East continue to hold? Plus, more hopeful signs that we're reaching the end of the pandemic. Following 11 days of fighting that left hundreds dead, the militant group Hamas and the Israeli military have held their fire now for more than 48 hours. The U.S. and regional leaders negotiated a halt to the violence late last week, but there is little hope for a change in the conditions that led to this round of confrontation. Let's
2: get something straight here. Until the region says unequivocally, they acknowledge the right of israel to exist as an independent jewish state there will be no peace
1: we'll talk with vermont senator bernie sanders one of several democrats urging more support for the palestinian people as a part of a more progressive approach to challenges at home and abroad former defense secretary robert gates once took a dim view of then senator biden's foreign policy judgment What does he think now? We also talked with him about the state of politics in America. I
3: worked for eight presidents. Five of them were Republicans. I don't think any of them would recognize the the Republican Party today.
1: With new coronavirus cases and deaths at their lowest level in almost a year, we'll check in with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The good news comes during college graduation season. We'll talk about what students faced and what they learned with the president of William & Mary, Katherine Rowe. Plus, plans to launch a commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection appear stalled. Army Lieutenant General Russell Honore is here to talk about his review of the security failures that enabled the deadly assault. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. A ceasefire between Israel and Hamas militants appears to be holding as we come on the air. Humanitarian aid began rolling into Gaza as people in bombed-out neighborhoods combed through the debris, picking up what's left behind. All this as hundreds of Hamas fighters paraded through the streets of Gaza City in a show of defiance after 11 days of fighting that left more than 250 people dead. The vast majority were Palestinians. CBS News foreign correspondent MTS Tayab is standing by in Jerusalem. But we begin with a report from CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams in Gaza.
4: Hamas celebrated the ceasefire with a victory parade through the streets of the Gaza Strip. They govern Gaza and are classed by the U.S. as a terrorist organization. The conflict has helped bolster the image of their leader, Yahya Sinwar, as the defender of the Palestinian cause. But this doesn't look like a win for the people of Gaza. Israeli airstrikes killed more than 240, according to officials here, including 66 children. And then over here, is the, this is the reception. This used to be the Gaza International Hotel. Owned by Afaf Abu Jabbar and her family, they built the business up over 25 years, until an Israeli airstrike targeted the multi-story building just next door. There was a warning in this neighborhood, and they got out of the hotel in time, but Afaf's dreams have been shattered. I don't want to cry, but
5: when I saw this, I'm very cried in my heart.
4: Israel is also claiming victory, saying it killed over 200 militants, but 12 civilians in the country lost their lives to Hamas rockets, and some Israelis are skeptical. Gonen Ben Itzak is a former Israeli intelligence officer, credited with preventing dozens of Palestinian terrorist attacks.
6: I'm just a patriot.
4: He blames Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, for igniting the clashes as he fights for political survival.
3: And the goal is to keep his position.
4: Hamas are war criminals, he says, but Israel's actions are helping them.
7: And I think uh, to myself, what? would have happened if I would live in, uh, in Gaza I guess that at least
8: I would go to the border and throw stones maybe become a terrorist because nobody gives me any hope nobody gives me any future
4: political leaders on both sides are scoring points while people in Israel and here in Gaza are mourning their dead and counting their losses John
1: Holly Williams reporting from Gaza We turn now to CBS News foreign correspondent M.T.S. Tayab. He's been reporting from Israel since soon after the current crisis started. M.T.S., I wanted to get your sense of the political attitude in Israel now that the ceasefire appears to be holding.
9: John, good to talk to you. I would say that the political mood here in Israel is bitter. It's confrontational. Uh, and many of the arrows that are being slung are landing directly on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Political leaders within his own coalition are accusing him, and these are their words, of caving to international pressure, caving to President Biden for this ceasefire. Uh, his own uh, party, people within his own party saying that uh, the fight in Gaza was not complete, that more damage needed to be inflicted on Hamas, and we didn't see that. On the other side those who say that mr netanyahu had potentially put in jeopardy israel's relationship with the u.s and indeed with this new administration mr netanyahu of course very close with president trump he's known president biden for a very long time but Mr. Biden is now president, and the concern was is that uh, this growing calls for a cessation of hostility coming from the U.S. may have fallen on deaf ears, and that could have hurt this relationship. But I do have to point out that, that this relationship is rock solid. Israel's politics are not. So compared to that picture of tussling
1: and acrimony, what does it look like inside the Palestinian political and public mood?
9: Well, we do know that Secretary Blinken is going to be meeting with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas on Wednesday. Uh, but the reality is, is that for most Palestinians, they do not see Mr. Abbas as representing them. Uh, and what we have been seeing here in Israel and indeed in the Palestinian territories is something very unique. We saw Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel essentially involved in communal fighting that we have not seen for many, many years. It was horrific to see. and. Since then, in the last few days, uh, Israeli media, Israeli social media, there's been a real campaign to try to bring these communities back together, talking about social cohesion. But while the fabric of Israeli society felt like it was being torn apart during the war, when it comes to Palestinians, whether it's inside of Israel, here in East Jerusalem, in the occupied West Bank or Gaza, they've been talking about something called Palestinian national unity, something we have not seen for a long time. Fascinating,
1: indeed, and we're lucky that we have you there for us, MTS Taib, in Jerusalem. Thanks so much. And we go now to Senator Bernie Sanders, who joins us from Burlington, Vermont. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, John. I want to start in the Middle East. You have made the case that how the U.S. government responds in this ceasefire period says something about President Biden's commitment to human rights more broadly. And last Sunday, you wrote a piece in the New York Times, that said the U.S. must stop being an apologist for the Netanyahu government. Since you wrote that, the president has been very supportive of Israel. Do you think the administration is being an apologist for the Netanyahu government?
7: Look, John, all that I think is that given the incredible suffering uh, in Gaza, where we have a poverty rate of 56 percent, 70 percent of the young people are unemployed, and after the Israeli attacks... Uh, you have wastewater plants destroyed, clinics destroyed, hospitals destroyed. I think the United States has got to develop a even-handed approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We have to be pro-Israel, but we have to be pro-Palestinian. And I hope and believe the president understands that. And I was uh, delighted to see that he is moving forward uh, to try to rebuild with the international community uh, the destruction, rebuild. Uh, Gaza after all of that destruction.
1: You mentioned an even-handed approach. When I read a portion of your uh, editorial to the Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, he thought it was preposterous, your claim, that he had created the conditions uh, and uh, that that he'd made peace impossible because he said... How do you have negotiations with Hamas? They are dedicated to the destruction of Israel. President Biden again said that this week when he said, until the region says unequivocally they acknowledge the right of Israel to exist, as an independent Jewish state, there will be no peace. How do you have an even-handed approach to terrorists who want to destroy Israel?
7: Well, what you have got to do is also understand that over the years, the Netanyahu government has become extremely right wing and that there are people in the Israeli government now who are overt racists. You have in West uh, Jerusalem people being evicted from their homes. Tremendous pressure on people within Israel, the Arab community, as well as Gaza. So you have a very difficult situation. You have Hamas, a terrorist group. You have a right-wing Israeli government, and the situation is getting worse. And all that I'm saying is that the United States of America has got to be leading the world in bringing people together, not simply supplying weapons to kill children in Gaza. This last series of attacks killed 64 children and destroyed a large part of the infrastructure of Gaza in a community that has already
1: been one of the most uninhabitable territories in the world. You have uh, put forward legislation uh, that would... Uh, delay this the sale uh, of, of military equipment to Israel. Would you also put the same kind of conditions you'd like to see on that aid to Israel on any aid the U.S. gives through the U.N. or otherwise to the Palestinians to make sure that Hamas doesn't get any of it?
10: Absolutely. Look,
7: Hamas is a terrorist, corrupt, authoritarian uh, group of people, and we have got to stand up to them. But once again, our job is not simply to put more and more military support for Israel. It is to bring people together. And we can't do it alone. We need the international community. But that's what I think we need to be doing.
1: Let me ask you about uh, how this has played out here at home. The Anti-Defamation League says there were 193 reports of anti-Semitic incidents this week, up from 131 the previous week. So that's during this period while the crisis began. In the past, you've said it should be possible to be a critic of Israeli policy, but not be anti-Semitic. But it doesn't seem to be playing out that way with this uptick in random attacks.
7: Anti-Semitism is rising in America. It's rising all over the world. That is an outrage, and we've got to combat anti-Semitism. We have to combat the increase in hate crimes in this country against uh, Asians, against African-Americans, against Latinos. So we got a serious problem of a nation which is being increasingly divided Uh, being led by right-wing extremists in that direction.
1: There are a number of liberals who use the word apartheid to describe Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. A number of liberals in the House um, who use that language. The executive director of the American Jewish Congress, who handled Jewish outreach for your campaign, has said um, that that word, Joel Rubin, has said that using that word has increased the level of vitriol that has contributed to this anti-Semitism. Do you think those who who share your view should not use that kind of language?
7: Well, I think we should tone down the rhetoric. I think our goal is very simple. It is to understand that what's going on in Gaza today is unsustainable. When you have 70% of the young people unemployed, when people cannot leave the community, when hospitals and wastewater plants have been destroyed, that is unsustainable. And the job of the United States is to bring people together. And that is what we have got to try to do.
1: I want to switch to domestic affairs now. The president and Republicans have been going back and forth on this question of infrastructure. The president made a, another bid, uh, shortened the price tag a little bit. But the central question of what infrastructure means, Republicans say it roads and bridges. Democrats say it includes lots of other things in the environment, child care, elder care. Is that difference so big that it can't be uh, fixed through bipartisan negotiations and Democrats should just go it alone?
7: Well, look, I think most working class Americans understand that for the last 40 years, what the government has done is catered to the needs of the wealthy and large corporations. Rich are becoming much richer, while real wages for average American workers have gone nowhere over the last many, many decades. And I think what we have got to do now, John, is start paying attention to a struggling middle class, a struggling working class. What does that mean? It means that at a time when half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck, we have got to create millions of good paying, good paying jobs that is rebuilding roads and bridges. We've talked about that forever, but it is also having to deal with the existential threat of climate Mm -hmm. How do you not deal with climate when the scientists tell us that the very future of the planet is in peril? And furthermore, when I think about infrastructure, of course it means education. How do we lead the world unless we have, in a competitive economy, world economy, the best educated workforce in the world? Of course it means childcare. Of so, course it means health care. And I think we've got to expand Medicare to cover dental, eyeglasses, hearing aids. And of course, it means dealing with income and wealth inequality.
1: So in 30 seconds, we have less, Senator. With ambitions like that, which the president shares, how do you do it through a a bipartisan process? Aren't you going to have to go through reconciliation just with Democratic votes?
7: That's probably right. And I think that's what the American people want. We would like bipartisanship, but I don't think we have a seriousness on the part of the Republican leadership to address the major crises facing this country. And if they're not coming forward, we've got to go forward alone.
1: All right, Senator Bernie Sanders, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll be back in one one moment. Stay with us. last year, the pandemic kept us from traveling to Williamsburg, Virginia for our annual conversation with former Defense Secretary Robert Gates. He is now chancellor of William and Mary. This year, we made it, though, and asked him about the prospects for peace between the Israelis and Palestinians.
3: I think there's very little prospect of uh, of peace between them at this point. I don't think there has been uh, in quite a long time. And I think I think, in fact, one of the things that produced the breakthrough with the Abraham Accords uh, between the Israelis and the Gulf States and others has been sort of essentially setting aside the Palestinian issue and and moving on uh, to a, a, a region that has changed in some pretty dramatic ways, um, which basically leaves the Palestinians
1: out in the cold. Is it? consistent with U.S. national interests and values to leave the Palestinians out in the cold? I certainly don't think it's consistent with our values.
3: But, you know, John, the truth is almost every president has made a, a, a real effort. And so these efforts have been stymied time and time again. And, and I would say there have been Israeli prime ministers who were actually interested in a solution. But, but the Palestinians couldn't bring themselves to say yes.
1: How do you grade President Biden's handling of the issue? I think that the US not being front and center
3: um, was probably not a bad thing. Uh, I think letting the Egyptians others take the lead, the loudest uh, voices for a ceasefire were coming from the, from Europe and from the United States, not from the Arab States, uh, although
1: Egypt certainly played a role in in negotiating the ceasefire. You mentioned President Biden was not publicly saying a number of things, not putting public pressure on the Israelis. I think sometimes the United States uh,
3: can reach it, can can achieve its objectives more effectively by playing a behind-the-scenes role than by being out in front. When the United States is out in front, it automatically creates lots of antibodies in a lot of different places. But if the U.S. is is playing a constructive role behind the scenes, uh, often it can be much more
1: effective. For U.S. policymakers in dealing with Israel, there have been reports that Israel has been attacking covertly the Iranian nuclear program. Does Israel have leverage over a U.S. president because of what it's doing covertly in Iran?
3: One of the things that I worried about when I was secretary was that the Israelis would take an action that they regarded as in their national interest THAT WOULD CREATE ENORMOUS PROBLEMS FOR THE UNITED STATES, uh, STRATEGICALLY, POLITICALLY, MILITARILY, AND THAT THEY COULD GET THEMSELVES INTO A PROBLEM AND THEN TURN TO US uh, TO BAIL THEM OUT. AND And MY WORRY WAS ALWAYS uh, A CONCERN ABOUT A UNILATERAL uh, ISRAELI ACTION THAT THEN
1: inevitably uh, would uh, require the United States to become involved. Do you think President Biden has to keep that in mind when he's putting pressure on Prime Minister Netanyahu on the Israeli-Palestinian front, that he has to keep in mind that he also needs Israel to not take the kind of action you're talking about? I think that the mood in the United States, particularly among
3: our politicians in Washington, IS PROBABLY SOMEWHAT LESS FAVORABLE TO ISRAEL TODAY uh, THAN IT HAS BEEN IN YEARS PAST. Um, I THINK WE SAW THIS IN SOME OF THE DEMOCRATIC uh, CRITICISM of, OF ISRAEL FOR THE uh, ACTIONS TAKEN IN GAZA. Uh, but, BUT, YOU KNOW, this is, THIS IS ONE OF THE PROBLEMS OF HAVING ALLIES, <laughs> is, IS THAT SOMETIMES THEY DO THINGS THAT uh, YOU THINK, I REALLY WISH THEY HADN'T DONE THAT. Uh, OR YOU wor- HAVE TO WORRY that they will do something.
1: You were a critic of President Biden's before he was president, but you've said a couple of things you think you agree with in his presidency so far. Um, Are you surprised?
3: No, not really. I mean, the reality is actually most of my concerns and criticisms of uh, Senator Biden really had to do with things that he voted on and opposed when in the Cold War. Mm Because he basically opposed every single initiative Ronald Reagan had in terms of the arms rates with the Soviets and various other things. Um, In the Obama administration, uh, in fact, we probably agreed on almost everything except Afghanistan. Now, that was a huge difference, and that was a big deal. We've always had a friendly relationship. I mean, we're. We're both, both literally and figuratively, old school, where you can disagree with people and still respect them, unlike them.
1: You're, the, you're about the same age.
3: Almost exactly. Could you do the job of being president at this age? <laughs> well, I'm getting encouraged. <laughs> so far, I didn't think so
1: a year or two ago, but so far, so good. <laughs> yeah. You mean you're encouraged by Joe Biden's yeah. ability to handle the job? Yeah. <laughs> What do you think about his Afghanistan policy withdrawal
3: from Afghanistan? I probably would have—first of all, it is an amazingly
6: tough
3: decision. Uh, And you now have both a Republican and a Democratic president basically saying the American people are done with this, we need to come home. I think what's really critical at this point is that we sustain our economic and military assistance to the Afghans after
1: we're gone. Let me take you back to your CIA days and uh, analyzing other countries. If you were analyzing the political structure of the United States as a CIA analyst and the minority party believed that the majority of the voters in that party believed that the president was illegitimate, how would you assess the stability of the political organization of that country? I would have serious concerns about the
3: future. You know, I've, I, I worked for I work for eight presidents, five of them were Republicans. I don't think any of them would recognize the, the Republican Party today. And what does that mean? Well, I think that I think in terms of the values and the principles that the Republican Party stood for under those five presidents uh, are hard to find
1: these days. When we come back, we'll hear more from Secretary Bob Gates. If you're not able to watch the full Face the Nation, you can set your DVR, or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus app. And we'll be right back with more from former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, plus the leader of the U.S. Capitol Review Task Force, Lieutenant General Russell Honore. Also, an update on the COVID pandemic with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb and the president of William & Mary, Catherine Rowe. Stay with us.
5: or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to pick up where we left off with former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. Do you think that riots on the 6th of January, that the former president saying that Joe Biden stole the election is gives an opportunity to America's enemies to say America is is a declining power? I think there is that, but I think it's also
3: broader than that, John. I think that what you see Xi Jinping saying and what you saw the Chinese foreign minister saying in Alaska in his meeting with Tony Blinken is, is not only pointing to our paralysis, uh, particularly in the Congress, an inability to get anything really big done, um, but BUT WHAT HAPPENED ON JANUARY 6th, BUT ALSO THE RIOTS LAST SUMMER, uh, THE WHOLE BLACK LIVES MATTER, um, our, 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 THE RACISM THAT WE SEE IN OUR SOCIETY. Uh, AND XI JINPING HAS BEEN VERY OPEN ABOUT SAYING THAT HE THINKS WE'RE A DECLINING POWER. AND and THE ONLY WAY TO uh, COUNTER THAT, FRANKLY, IS THROUGH ACTIONS, THROUGH being able to actually get some things done in Washington that we haven't been able to get done for a long time. Um, but it's also, again, it goes back to strategic communications. How do, you, how do you convey the message to the rest of the world? Yeah, we're a flawed country. We've, we've always had flaws, but we're unique in that we're the only country that actually talks about those flaws and actually works to try and fix them. Mm-hmm. We are an aspirational country, and
1: we've kind of lost that Uh, message, it seems to me. If there's a debate in America over whether the last election was legitimate, 70 percent of Republicans believe it, it was not. How does a country that can't even agree on that basic, obvious truth ever get behind more abstract truths like sacrificing for democracies in places that you don't know about, sacrificing for developing helping developing countries because it's in our interests all of which are ideas which require belief in those ideas the one thing I think across the ideological spectrum
3: that brings people together is when they see young people taking on the uniform of our military services and they're taking an oath to the Constitution and it's it's why the military to this day remains perhaps the most respected institution in the country, because it's seen by people as not being part of politics. It's, it's part of, it's what the country represents. I've read quotes from Republicans on the Hill that, that basically say, you know, in their heart of hearts, there probably aren't five people up here that actually believe that the election was stolen. So part of this is political gaming rather than a real conviction. That the election was stolen, can we but afford- how that manifests itself in the next election, I think, is going to be a challenge.
1: Yeah, can, aren't we? Isn't that playing footsie with some very dangerous stuff? That kind totally. Of, yeah. It's very dangerous. What did you make? You know the Cheney family. What did you make of Liz Cheney's stand and then ultimate ejection from Republican leadership? No, I,
3: I thought she was very courageous. Uh, she's a person of uh, of real integrity. Um, you know, internal politics on the Hill is uh, is another matter, though. Unless we solve that problem, do you think we can solve any of these other big challenges? I think it would be very difficult, and I think that that problem goes back 20 years or more of of, of demonizing the other party and of, of, of not having uh, friends on the other side of the aisle, of not socially gathering after hours and talking about things and having friends that's when you leech the hatred and the venom out of the relationship and you can focus on policies and once you're focused on policies then you can figure out a way to compromise
1: secretary gates thank you thanks John. our full interview with secretary gates is on our website at cbsnews.com The Senate is now considering two House-passed measures related to the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, a bill funding increased security and one creating a commission to look into the attack. We go now to retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore, who conducted a security review following the riots. Good morning, General. Good morning, John. So the National Guard wraps up its mission today at the Capitol. Is now the right time to send those troops home?
6: Well, I tell you what. Uh, if it's not, they've hit that magic date, and they're going home. Uh, and the capital is secure, based on the mission that the Capitol Police have now, which is secure the Capitol. One of the missions they will not be able to probably accomplish, as designated by both houses and all parties, is the open campus. Uh, that will be. They will not be able to return immediately to the open campus where people can openly visit the Capitol because of the, the uh, strain on the Capitol Police. Their numbers are down over 230, uh, and uh, that was as of the date we completed our report. But uh, God bless the National Guard, they've done significant work, and they are leaving today 137 days after the attack on 1-6.
1: Your report, you looked into the security at the Capitol and you made a report that was the basis of a bill that barely passed out of the House and looks like it's going to have some tough sledding in the Senate. This is for supplemental funding to take care of some of the inadequacies you saw. Why is it important that this bill pass? And is it urgent or is it something they can have a think about?
6: Uh, The longer they think, the less secure the Capitol will be because we have to harden the Capitol. And look, 700 million of the 1.9 is paying bills, John. You know, we had to pay for those thousand National Guard that were there for over a month and the continued deployment of the Guard. And they're leaving uh, today as we speak. They're redeploying home. So those bills had to be paid. They had to pay bills for overtime for Capitol Police. You know, the Capitol is not just one building. It's about 10 buildings there that are included under the purview of the Capitol Police. They also put some money in there to pay some of the COVID expenses, uh, as well as money for the architect of the Capitol to start the design work uh, to harden the Capitol. So $700 million is paying bills. I mean, that's yeah. just logistics, and that has to be paid. Some of them are taking issue with $200 million that's in the bill to fund the National Guard Quick Reaction Force. There's some talk about using uh, regional police for that mission. That might work on a scheduled event that might happen on Saturday afternoon with a large crowd coming to town. I don't think it will work with a threat of domestic terrorism at three o'clock in the morning, where you can call local law enforcement and say, show up at the Capitol. You know, 80% of our Capitol police live outside the district. That was the reason for the quick reaction force. It still leaves the mission with the D.C. Guard to be prepared to respond. But the quick reaction force would give them ability to respond in minutes. Now that's going to be hours before they would be able to respond because you've got to recall them to duty.
1: And if there was such a, a force on the 6th of January, how would things have been different?
6: It could have been totally different. Uh, and as has been pointed out, some of the command and control where the Capitol Police Chief can go directly mm-hmm. to the guard in an emergency situation. Is one of the recommendations we made and get the National Guard to stop moving.
1: Let me ask you about that day, the, because urgency for this supplemental funding kind of depends on, on the way people look back on the 6th of January. I'd like to play a clip here from Congressman Andrew Clyde of Georgia, who recently emphasized some of the video on January 6th. Let's listen to what he has to say.
0: You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit
1: now that's true of some of the footage but there's also a great deal of the other kind of footage some of which was released this week of the, the rioters celebrating hurting a policeman you looked at this situation on the sixth how would you characterize what the police had to face on that day
6: they had to face a, a dangerous violent mob that uh fought them tried to kill them look the capitol police- have taken uh, two, what we may usually say, three killed in action, uh, two on that day, one directly and one indirectly from suicide and subsequent attack that killed the Capitol Police. Uh, this is a, a tough mission. The Capitol will have to be protracted 365. What I'm afraid of, John, is when I hear statements like that, is that we have a two-party system that normally would be referred to as a minority party the opposition uh and that scares me they've gone from being a minority party to an opposition party and to borrow the words from nancy reagan they just say no this has this is serious business it's about their security and right now we have the security security capital but that does not include the mission to have it open to the public which all of them both sides the houses both parties Want the capital be open to the public, and this funding is needed. So if they don't fund it, they don't have it. But right. I think they want the capital police to have current, mm. up-to-date riot equipment. Right. I think they want the capital police to mm. have the security mm. and heart in the capital. So they're going to have to sit down and right. talk their way through this. But I don't think waiting yep. on general regional gonna, police to come to your need uh, is an answer.
1: All right, General. I'm sorry to cut you off. We're going to have to end it there. It's commencement season, and this year, some schools are not only celebrating the class of 2021, but also the class of 2020, many of whom missed out on the pageantry because of the COVID pandemic. Here's our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman.
8: This!
2: Miss! America's slowly graduating from our COVID siege, a shift marked and mirrored at this month's college commencements.
10: Graduates of 2020. We were supposed to do this last year.
2: USC grads sat socially distanced in Los Angeles. The traditional can-do messaging at commencements all over came through the prism of the pandemic.
5: You have adapted in the face of unprecedented challenges. You have persevered and you have earned your degree.
2: Challenges that brought up both despair and America's best. Our COVID times have brightened since the dark days of January. The seven-day average of new cases down 90 percent. Hospitalizations down almost 80 percent. COVID deaths now roughly 500 a day down 85 percent. New Mexico became the ninth state to hit the goal of 70 percent of adults with at least one shot four others are close. President Biden's goal is 70% of American adults with at least one shot by July 4th, a goal Dr. Anthony Fauci believes will reach. But the CDC warns the daily pace of new vaccinations is down, down almost 50% in the last month. States have had to get creative. To encourage the unvaccinated, Ohio, New York and Maryland gave vaccine lotteries a shot. Five Ohioans will win a million dollars. In one week, vaccinations there surged 53%. I
4: mean, literally the next day we went from two appointments to 25 appointments.
2: Like these graduates at Texas Christian University, we're all in transition. So getting to have that final chapter is really nice. And despite uncertainty ahead, moving with renewed confidence toward a post-COVID America. (laughs)
1: And we go now to FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who sits on the board of Pfizer and joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning. So, Dr. Gottlieb, we have been piling up some good numbers in the last couple of weeks we've been meeting together, but I wanted to focus on one we're going to put up on the on the screen, the decline in hospitalizations for people to see. What does that say to you, that graph?
10: It shows really a rapidly declining um, overall vulnerability of the U.S. population. I think we're still seeing a lot of cases per day, about 20,000 cases per day yesterday. And cases may not fall much below 10,000 because we're doing a lot of testing around the country. But the bottom line is that the people who are getting infected now tend to be people who are younger, less vulnerable to the infection, because a lot of the vulnerable population has been vaccinated. About 85 percent of those above the age of 65 have now been vaccinated. So the people most likely to get into trouble with covid have now been protected through vaccination. And you're seeing a rapidly um, declining rate of new hospitalizations as a consequence of that fact.
1: So as Mark Strassman said in his piece, we are entering into the post-pandemic stage. So help us put together a kind of toolkit to navigate that post-pandemic stage. What should individuals be keeping in their mind for that stage that might be different than what we've all been thinking about for the last year and a half?
10: Yeah, I think it's an environment right now where we're not going to be able to rely necessarily on public health ordinances and mandates from governors and mayors to protect us. But we're going to have to protect ourselves based on our own assessment of our risk and our own comfort. And so if you're unvaccinated, you're going to be at higher risk. If you're in a high prevalence area where there's still a lot of infection, you're going to be at higher risk. If you have a pre-existing medical condition that could put you at higher risk because you're either immunocompromised because of medicine you might be on or you have a risk factor like heart disease or lung disease, you're going to be at higher risk as well. So I think people may need to make individual assessments of their risk as they make judgments about what they should and shouldn't be doing, like wearing a mask in an indoor setting and also judging the setting if it's a sort of, you know, crowded setting with a very mixed um population. You don't know a lot of the people. That's different than, you know, getting together in, in a household where you know a lot of people are vaccinated. And finally, we need to make a judgment about just what our comfort is. A lot of people have spent a year wearing masks, taking certain precautions. And so it's going to take some time for us to get comfortable again, going into settings without taking those precautions. I think there's nothing wrong with wearing a mask if you're still in an indoor setting, even in an environment where it's not not mandated. And and in some places, it's the etiquette. If you go into a pharmacy or a doctor's office, people expect you to be wearing a mask. So people are also have also got to make an assessment about what their comfort level is. And the good news is that I think culturally we've changed in that if you're walking around with a mask right now, you're not looked upon um, in an odd fashion. Whereas, you know, two years ago, if you wore a mask, everyone would take a step back from you.
1: That's right. Well, and maybe so maybe people carry the mask in their pocket and use it as the circumstances. Require. I wanted to add to your point about those who are vaccinated and those who are not in the calculation people are making in this post pandemic phase. If you choose not to get vaccinated, you're making a public health choice as well, not just for yourself. Right. Based on what we know about how the vaccine works and and what if you're vaccinated, your ability to spread really almost disappears.
10: I think that's a key point. We haven't really talked about it as much because it's not currently in the approved labeling of the vaccines. And so FDA is in a a position where they really can't speak to this directly. And the manufacturers can, of course. But CDC can and they have. When they made when they lifted the uh, recommendation for wearing masks indoors or outdoors if you're vaccinated, what that change was predicated on was information that they have that gives them confidence that if you're fully vaccinated with one of the available vaccines, you're gonna not only be much less likely to get infected, either symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, But if you do get infected, if you are vaccinated and you become asymptomatically infected, you're far less likely to transmit the infection. Now, we haven't fully quantified the magnitude of that, but it is substantial. So someone who's fully vaccinated, even if they do end up getting infected with the virus and either know they're infected or they don't know they're infected, they haven't developed symptoms, they're still going to be far less likely to spread that infection. So by getting vaccinated, you're protecting those around you, even if you're at lower risk, if you're someone who could potentially come into contact with the virus and put others at risk and you don't want Want to be in that position of putting other people at risk, you have elderly parents, you have children, you have other people around you who may be vulnerable. Getting vaccinated is going to substantially reduce the likelihood that you can introduce the infection into a setting where other people could be put at risk.
1: In our last minute, what about parents who want to know what to think about their kids who are under 12 and they're not being able to get vaccinated?
10: I think this gets back to some of the first points we discussed. You're going to have to make an assessment about the risk. I don't think kids need to be wearing masks outside anymore. I think CDC is going to have to revise its guidance around summer camps because wearing a mask, you know, is difficult in the summertime when it's hot. And I don't think that the risk merits that. Uh, But I do think parents need to make an assessment about the risk of the environment that the child's going to be in. So, you know, in a a crowded, indoor, stuffy setting, in a classroom, for example, I think having kids continue to wear masks for a period of time is reasonable. We're still not in a very low-prevalence environment. The rate of infection is coming down sharply. I think by June we're probably going to be at one infection per 100,000 people per day, which is a very low level. Mm -hmm. It's what CDC defines as a very low level. So the risk is going to be quite low when we get to that point.
1: All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, once again, thanks so much for your help. While we were in Williamsburg, Virginia on Friday, we also sat down with the president of William & Mary, Catherine Rowe. I interviewed her late last spring for 60 Minutes. At that point, with the pandemic raging, it was unclear whether and how classes would continue. Some people worry about a lost generation.
5: We have an obligation to ensure that this cohort of students doesn't lose speed, doesn't lose momentum in their college educations.
1: What would happen if the students lost that speed?
5: It's really hard to imagine accepting that as a possible path forward. We can't. So, however we have a year next year, we will have a year.
1: William and Mary held six graduation ceremonies this weekend. Just under 2,000 students received their degrees. We asked President Rowe to reflect on the year. Last spring, when we talked,
5: We knew this year would be different, and it has been, it's been seven years of adaptation in one, Uh, an amazing experience, an experience of a community really pulling together and making the adaptations at speed that it needed to. We've moved through those decisions in a phased way. That has turned out to be one of the keys. Work with the data that you have, work with the science that you have, trust in the expertise on your campus, and ask for commitment of your community and the culture that we have at william and mary has made that
1: really really successful you are in touch with your the students here how did those conversations change with students in the from the pre-pandemic period
5: when we got here in august the the country as a whole didn't know how to create shared norms around mask wearing we were just discovering that wearing masks was the key factor in protecting the community's health Mm -hmm. and and our core commitment. We had a very simple set of goals. Keep teaching, keep learning, keep our community safe so that we can study and be in the jobs that our faculty and staff are passionate about. And we created that culture. We created habits where a mask was the norm.
1: How did students at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale fare through this last year?
5: One of the things that we came away from is a A REAL ATTENTIVENESS TO THOSE WHO ARE MOST VULNERABLE, SO LOW-INCOME STUDENTS, FIRST-GEN STUDENTS, STUDENTS OF COLOR, STUDENTS WITH FAMILIES WHERE THERE MIGHT BE HEALTH ISSUES, AND KEEPING THE VULNERABILITIES, A MUCH WIDER RANGE OF VULNERABILITIES IN MIND WHEN YOU DESIGN LEARNING EXPERIENCES AND LIVING EXPERIENCES, THAT WAS IMPERATIVE. WE KNEW THAT THERE COULD BE ALREADY, THE COUNTRY WAS TALKING ABOUT THE RISK OF A LOST YEAR. I THINK WHAT WE'VE HAD IS A HARD ONE YEAR hmm. AT WILLIAM AND MARY. AND A LOT OF OUR SUCCESS HAS BEEN ABOUT FOCUSING ON THOSE WHO ARE MOST VULNERABLE.
1: IF I'M IN THE AUDIENCE AND YOU'RE DELIVERING MY COMMENCEMENT ADDRESS, what WHAT IS THE MESSAGE FROM THIS TIME OF TRIAL AND TESTING?
5: THE GRIT THAT YOU SHOWED THIS YEAR, THE adaptability THAT YOU LEANED INTO AND GREW, AND THE COMMITMENT TO OTHERS that we forged. Those are going to be your superpowers for the rest of your life.
9: That's great.
1: Thank you so much, Kath.
5: Thank you, John. Real pleasure.
1: That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, leader of the U.S. Capitol Security Review, retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and the president of William & Mary, Catherine Rowe. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1.00 p.m. and 4.00 p.m. Eastern, free Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three,
6: four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.